0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Why would we do a series like Theological Boot Camp? Um, Well, first of all, we can't get intimidated by the word theology. It's kind of, um, can be a word that feels a little arcane. Uh, It's just a fancy way of saying, what do the scriptures teach us about God? What do the scriptures teach us about uh, Jesus, uh, our world, ourselves? Um, Those are intensely practical questions. And uh, theology helps us to, to answer those questions. Uh, but secondly, uh, there's a lot that God says in this book. <laughs> if you've read it, you know, it's pretty long. Um, and if God bothered to put it in there, we should probably bother to find out what's in it. Um, in this series, we're, we're doing um, a wide ranging uh, sampling of, of what God has told us in his word. Um, which is critical if you're going to truly know the Lord uh, as a person, as a being, not just a force or a business partner. Uh, letting your knowledge uh, of God be determined by two or three passages of scripture or two or three types of scriptures would be like letting two or three isolated conversations determine your knowledge of your spouse. Uh, You need dozens of conversations, if not hundreds of conversations to truly know your spouse. So if that's true of them, you're going to need even more to truly know the only God there is. Now, so far we have delved into uh, the revelation of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God today, the holiness of God. Oh dear. You might sigh. (laughs) The holiness of God does have the smell of mothballs about it. Maybe the look of a Victorian matron administering castor oil. And much of what purports to be holiness has just that aura about it. Prickliness, prudery. Uh, People even say things like, uh, yes, God is loving, but he's also holy. As if holiness is an unloving thing the cold side of God that stops God from being too loving, to which I would say that's balderdash and poppycock. (laughs) What I hope to show you today is that the love and holiness of God are interconnected to such a degree that one cannot exist without the other. To, To pit God's holiness against his love or to pity his love against his holiness demonstrates an unbiblical understanding of both. The, the love and holiness of God are so intertwined, they cannot be pulled apart. And this is the reason, by the way, that, that next week we'll be looking at the love of God. You could actually look at this as a subset within a series. This is part one. Next week is part two when we look at the love of God. Now, what I'm going to do as a way to get us inside the right arena is to walk through fairly briefly five passages of scripture that will serve as a foundation and launching pad for our ruminations on the holiness of God. Uh, We're going to be active with our Bibles today, so make sure you've got them open and they're in front of you. And the first one we're going to is Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Ten, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 10. And we're just going to look at the first three verses. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. What do you do with a passage like this? It's stunning. It's controversial. Let's try to get our bearings on it. Aaron was the high priest. He's responsible for the entire sacrificial system. The Lord spelled out for Israel after he had delivered them from tyranny in Egypt. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons who also served as priests. It was the family business of sorts. Now, the question on every reader's mind as you're looking at this story is, what did Aaron's sons do to deserve God wiping them out on the spot? Well, there's some things that we can find, I think, in the text that will help us figure out the story. Um, Immediately after this scene, Aaron gives his other two sons instructions to abstain from intoxicating drink. Maybe that's an indicator to us that Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they offered this unauthorized fire. Others uh, would say when looking at this, that this reference to strange fire or unauthorized fire uh, meant that they did not take the fire from the right place, which was the altar of ascension offering. That had been kindled in. Uh, directly from the Lord's glory. So maybe a combination of these two is possible as well, that Nadab and Abihu were drunk, and because they were drunk, they were negligent with their duties in appropriating the fire from uh, the wrong source. Whatever the details may be, it appears quite possible that Nadab and Abihu attempted to penetrate the presence of the Lord within the most holy place. Two reasons for this can be offered. First, the description of their action parallels that of Aaron, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, specifically in their use of censers. Second, Leviticus 16 prefaces prefaces, um, the Day of Atonement legislation with a rehearsal of the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, drawing a clear point of application. Aaron himself is not to presume Uh, to enter the most holy place at any time or in any manner that he wants. If he does so, he will die. Now, apparently Aaron's sons were guilty of this presumption. Leviticus 16 offers for the first time the law for how and when and who of entering the most holy place. So all of this is very plausible and it's likely that those or some combination of those things is right. But after it's all said and done, the simplest observation may be, just the way to think about it. The reason for God's judgment of Nadab and Abihu is that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command, contrary to his command. Now still, even if you work out those details, it still does feel a bit harsh. If any people had a close relationship with God, it was Moses and Aaron. One might expect a little leeway from God in dealing with Aaron's sons, but there was none for one transgression at the altar, God reacted swiftly and violently, wiping them out on the spot. It was not as if, by the way, it was not as if Nadab and Abihu had profaned the altar with prostitutes or offering human sacrifice. All they did was offer unauthorized fire contrary to the Lord's command and it aroused the wrath and judgment of God. Now, how did Aaron view the event? Well, we don't have a lot in the text. It just says he remained silent, but Put yourself in his shoes. Maybe he's angry. Maybe he's hurt. It was a calamity for Aaron. It's a calamity for his family. I mean, he had dedicated his entire life to the service of God. His sons were following in his footsteps. And what thanks did they get from the God he served? God executed his sons for what appears to be a minor infraction of the rules. And after it happens, you can picture it. Aaron rushes off to see Moses. He tells him what's happened. And God has a word that he wants to speak to Aaron through Moses. And we read it. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. When he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. God is reminding Aaron Of the original consecration of the priests, which is detailed in the previous two chapters, chapters eight and nine, gives an account of this. God gave them a sacred task and solemnly charged them with the precise requirements of their office. They had the privilege of ministering before a holy God, they had their marching orders. In fact, if you read the details of their job description, chapters eight and nine, you find a repeating phrase as the Lord has commanded as the lord has commanded as the lord has commanded over and over again so god was pretty specific with his expectations of the priests and they went off script and god's assessment of that is that's rebellion among those who approach me i will be proved holy flip in your bibles over to second samuel we're going to look at another account a similar account Second Samuel chapter six, we're going to look at the first eight verses. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, Harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Well, the scene starts off jubilantly enough. It was fun. It was loud. It was a worship service. Dancing, singing, the likes of lyres and tambourines, cymbals, and so on. Kiriath Jirim was rocking. The ark was traveling on a new cart. Pulled by oxen with ahio in Uza serving as attendants. And a strange thing happened near the threshing floor of Nakon. It took a moment for everyone to realize it. The dancing stopped, the music stopped, and all eyes turned to Uzza on the ground, writhing, twitching, and then still. Someone called 911. The party was over. Verse seven, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his error. So he died there beside the ark of God. I wonder how many of us find it offensive, the entire story. Uzzah's just trying to help. Was he to allow the oxen to bounce the ark right off the cart? Why didn't the Lord cut him some slack? Why so severe? So apparently arbitrary. We should be angry. Shouldn't we? Or should we fear? Now, for me, passages like this are evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the Bible. This ooze story goes against the grain of human preferences. We would never have invented a God like this. Not if we want to win converts and influence people, because this God is not very marketable. Anyone who says the, the, the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish fulfillment has not read the Bible. Now, what was the problem here? What was the error? We have to recall that the Lord had long ago given specific instructions to Moses and the priesthood about how the ark among other items was to be transported. You can read about the details in numbers four, The rules, the high level were no touch, no look, no cart. No touch, no look, no cart. The priests were to cover the sacred furniture after which they would assign Levites of the Kohathite clan to carry the items. Hence, there were to be no carts. They were to be carried, no carts. The Kohathites were not to touch or look upon the sacred items lest they die, Numbers 4. Clearly, the Lord did not want them to die. His kindness is written all over this warning. So it was not as though David and Uzzah and company had no warning. The Lord's blow was hardly arbitrary. Now, in addition to that background, we should know how the Lord's deed is described in verse eight. Look at it. Now, David became angry because the Lord had broken out with an outbreak against Uzzah. So that place is called outbreak of Uzzah to this day. Now, I've translated that literally so you can see the three uses of the root word to break out. Okay, Anyone reading through 2 Samuel cannot help remembering how the same root word was used four times in chapter 5, verse 20. Previous chapter. Here it is. And David came to the Lord of outbreakings and David struck them down there. Then he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like an outbreaking of waters. Therefore, he called the name of that place, Lord of Outbreakings. So in chapter five, verse 20, God breaks out against David's enemies. And in chapter six, verse eight, against David's friend. God may break out against the Philistines or Israel. God's lethal holiness levels both pagans and church people. Now, of course, as readers, we can object to this if we like. But the application of the text is clear. You can't trifle with a God who is both real and holy. The Lord is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. Now, lest we think that this is just an Old Testament thing, let's turn to the New Testament for another scene. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now this event takes place on the same side, the same side uh, of the cross and the resurrection that we live on. So as far as the scope and storyline of redemptive history goes, we inhabit the same space as the characters of this story. Two members of the community, Ananias, his wife, Sapphira, like many other members, sold the priests of property, which they possessed. They retained part of the price for their private use as they had every right to do. And Ananias brought the rest to the apostles to be used for the benefit of the community. But here's the problem. He represented this balance as being the total purchase price that they had received. Ananias falls down dead as a result of the judgment of God. Three hours later, the incident repeats itself with his wife, Sapphira. In other words, to put it bluntly, they were liars. They wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Now I look at this story and I remember being in seminary with a study group um, and we were talking about this story and we were saying to one another, I wonder how many of us would just shrug our shoulders at what Ananias and Sapphira did. Okay. So they fibbed a little bit. They didn't tell the whole truth. Everybody does that. And I I wonder in our, in our study group, we talked a little bit about this. um, Why don't we see this happening? Or at least we don't think we see this happening in the church anymore. And one of the, uh, one of the students I was with said, well, if God still did that, would there even be a church left? In this little fib, Peter sees the activity of Satan. Did you see that? Ananias and Sapphira receive the sharp end of God's judgment as they are struck down in full view of the church. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament we see this kind of thing. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. So that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So the bottom line here is that there are some believers in the church participating in the Lord's Supper frivolously and thoughtlessly without reverently recognizing the significance of the occasion. And the result, some of those in the church became ill and died. Why? Paul's explicit, the judgment of God. Now listen, I do believe The Lord does in fact put some of his children to sleep to death because of sin. This text taken together with Acts chapter five leaves little room for doubt on that. If we dabble in sin, the Lord has the right to discipline us for it immediately without being accused of injustice. Let's look at one more. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. We're going to start in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's important to keep in mind. This is written to a church. So, the warnings here are for us. The topic is willful, deliberate sin and a refusal to repent. These are people who have heard the gospel, even understand the gospel, but in their lives they refuse to walk as Jesus walked. And the writer, in the most pointed manner possible, shows us such people are doomed for judgment and raging fire. This kind of person deserves to be punished. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a number of you who have never read these stories before, never read these verses before, and they might be jolting, but remember, the Bible is the written revelation of God. And it's important that if we're going to get to know, truly know God, we can't base our knowledge of God on two or three passages of scripture or two or three kinds of passages of scripture. It takes hundreds and thousands of conversations of passages for us to truly know what he's like, what his plans and purposes are and what his desires are from his creation. So in the time remaining, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the holiness of God. We're going to look at three aspects to it. The overwhelming nature of it, the unyielding power of it, and the surprising origin of it, the overwhelming nature of it, the unyielding power of it, and the surprising origin of it. First, the overwhelming nature of it on a purely lexical level, the word holy means set apart, separate. And we look at that, when we take a look at that definition and we work it back into the five passages of scripture we read, we can start to piece together what the holiness of God entails, If God is holy, 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 he is separate from us. He's above us. He's exalted infinitely beyond us. When we say God is holy, we're saying something about the otherness of God, the superlativeness of God. When the holiness of God strikes you, you realize he is so superlative, so perfect, so absent of anything crooked or limited or distorted or broken that you realize you cannot trifle with him. You cannot argue with him. You cannot complain about him. You cannot beat him. You cannot avoid him. You cannot ignore him. You cannot question him. All of those things are things we do naturally until we genuinely see the holiness of God, the superlative-ness of God. Think about this. We are overwhelmed in the presence of human superlativeness. Just think for a moment about being in the presence of human superlativeness. Intuitively, you know what this is like. You will always find it traumatic because it crushes your self-image. You might think you're pretty or fast or smart, and then you move uh, to a big city where now you're in proximity to people who are prettier, faster, and smarter than you. So if being in the presence of human superlativeness, your self-image comes crashing down around you, how do you think it's going to be any different with God? We haven't seen, truly seen the holiness of God until we see his power and perfection to the degree that all of our excuse making, all of our complaining about him, all of our questioning of him falls at our feet, pitiful looking to us. Realizing I have no right to question a God like this. I have no right to complain about a God like this. I heard a story about a pastor who asked a woman in his church when she had become a Christian and her her reply was interesting. She said, well, that's, that's hard to say. Do you mean the day I heard first heard and understood the message of Christianity? Or do you mean the day I actually came to believe it? Or do you mean the day I realized that if God is who he says he is, then my entire life is going to be completely changed and turned upside down. And the pastor simply said, yes, I'd like to know about that last day. Because I don't know when you were converted, but that day is the day you came to realize that this God is a holy God. She realized one day that this God is not one you can trifle with. You cannot ignore him. You cannot back away from him. This is a God that if she approaches him at all, it's going to mean a radical change of everything she does and thinks. What was happening to her? She was being overwhelmed by the superlativeness of God, the holiness of God. Second, the unyielding power of it. Now, time and again in the scriptures, God's holiness is juxtaposed with fire. It's set next to, set side by side with fire. We see that in the story of Nadab and Abihu. Fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Uh, Fire is in the Hebrew passage that, uh, Hebrews passage that promises judgment for those who live unholy lives. The sacrificial system that God put in place was about making the people of Israel holy and the sacrifices were consumed by the fire of the Lord. Back in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, tells him to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy ground. Eight times in the Bible, God is called the consuming fire, eight times. And holiness is the theme that floats around the context of that title. Why? Well, let's think about fire for a minute. God's decision to use this as the imagery that's what translate into human language or human experience has got to be telling us something about the nature of his holiness. Um, Fire. We love fire. (laughs) We spend money to bring it into our homes. Um, Last time you were at a campfire, did you find yourself dazzled by its mesmerizing appeal um, fire has a way of drawing you in. It captivates you. I can't get my kids off my back to, to have a fire every night when we're at home. Additionally, without electricity, fire means light. It erases darkness. It helps you make sense of your world. So fire is mesmerizing and it's helpful. But fire is also lethal. It's dangerous. So it draws you in but simultaneously keeps you at a distance. God's saying something about his own nature. He possesses a beauty that dazzles us, that draws us in, but possesses a lethalness that keeps us at a distance. According to some ancient cultures, the five basic elements are fire, wood, water, metal, earth. Compare fire with water. Put your hand in water and you can move it around. You can disperse it. You, you, you can do the same thing with earth or clay. Same thing. You can manipulate. It. You form it. Water, clay, earth are shaped by the toucher. Put your hand in fire and you find out something. The toucher can't shape the fire. You can't stick your hand in a flame and manipulate the flame. The fire shapes the toucher. Fire is unyielding. It doesn't bend to your will. You can't manipulate it. You can't control it. You can't form it. Fire controls you. It forms you. So let's get practical for a moment. If the holiness of God is fire to you, there are going to be pieces of evidence of that all over your life. All over your life. Too many to talk about. Let me just mention three. The first is you're going to have a dynamic and frequent personal prayer life. After all, if God cannot be manipulated or controlled or formed, but instead does all the controlling and the forming, we're going to be on our knees multiple times every day, pleading with him to do that, to control, to form. If God is fire to you, he's going to be the first one you turn to in a crisis. Also, if God is fire to you, you're going to find yourself drawn to him often in deep contemplation of his manifold perfections. He's a mesmerizing flame that demands our attention, demands our focus. If God is fire to us, we're not going to treat him flippantly. We'll be quick to consult his word which contains his worldview and we'll have a deep inner need to know what he thinks. He's fire. He's mesmerizing, beautiful. And at the same time forces us to keep a distance. Now let's look last at the surprising origin of it. Now, I don't know about you, but getting clarity, getting high definition clarity around the holiness of God feels evasive. It feels like we're chasing the end of a rainbow. And I think one of the reasons for this is that when we start talking about the holiness of God or the the glory of God, we are talking about the internal essence of God, which is infinite and perfect and impossible, impossible for finite fallen minds to fully grasp understanding these, these intrinsic perfections of God is like trying to explain theoretical physics to a four-year-old. It's like collecting sand in a colander. Petrus von Maastricht, who is a Dutch theologian from the 17th century is the only theologian of the dozen or so that I consulted who put words to the frustration that I was feeling. So I was neck deep in this and feeling frustrated that I, I, that God's holiness is just something I can't get definition to. He's the only one. Maastricht was the only one who put words to what I was feeling. Here's what he writes. He says, in order that we more easily understand what the holiness of God is. Now watch this. Since it is inaccessible to us as it exists in him. <laughs> that's our minds trying to get, themselves wrapped around the infinite God. It is necessary that we should contemplate that holiness in its image. That is in the imaged holiness of creatures. He's actually very helpful here. So he says a a couple of things here. First, he's saying that understanding the holiness of God as it exists in him is inaccessible to us. That's, that's the finite fallen mind trying to understand the, the perfect infinite God. That's why it feels evasive. Uh, We're going to struggle to grasp the infinite perfections of God. So what, what Maastricht proposes is to contemplate the holiness in God's image. That's us. Now, why would Maastricht propose that? Well, in the context of his statement, he was meditating on Leviticus 11, which is repeated in 1 Peter and other places in the New Testament, where it says, where God says, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I'm holy. Since the infinite holiness of the creator is inaccessible to us, we ought to gather the holiness of the creator as much as can be done from the holiness of the creature, the image of the holy God, or, or more precisely look at the holy life. God desires us to live, desires us to live and explains in great detail from, uh, in, explains in great detail from that to construct a picture of what it looks like for God to be holy. Holy. Because the language of Leviticus 11 is reflective. Be holy, for I am holy. Be like this, because I'm like this. So, if we attempt to flesh out a picture of God's holiness, we start with the picture of human holiness. Now, when it comes to the holiness of human beings, where's the most obvious place to start? The Ten Commandments. Now, normally when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think of them as giving us a pathway for living a holy life before the Lord. That's certainly one of God's intentions. The Ten Commandments are what holiness looks like in the life of the believer. But as we look at them, remember something. These are not arbitrary. God didn't select these randomly. He wasn't bored one day and decided to generate an eclectic to-do list. It's not how these work. These are an expression of his holiness. They are a natural outworking of his essence and being. So let me read them for you just to refresh your memory. Here are the 10. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name Of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the 10. We're all familiar with these. But did you know that Jesus summed them up? He summed them all up in two commandments. He boiled it down, disseminated it down to two. We read about that in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here it is. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here's the answer to the point we're in. The surprising origin of God's holiness is love. Specifically, as Jesus defines it, love for God and love for people. So the origin of of our holiness, human beings, particularly the church, the origin of our holiness, the spring from which our holiness bubbles forth is love for God and love for people. Now listen carefully the origin of God's holiness, the spring from which his holiness bubbles forth is the same. Love for himself and love for people. Now, we're not the first ones to have realized this or put this together. This idea has been taught from almost the dawn of the church. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s put it succinctly. He says this, all creature holiness consists essentially and summarily in love to God and love to other creatures. So does the holiness of God consist in his love, especially in the perfect and intimate union and love there is between the father and the son. And we already touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when we looked at the glory of God, we'll touch on it uh, a little bit next week when we look at the love of God. But let me say this 1 John 4 8 is a verse that many kids memorize if they grow up in the church God is love. And uh, the modern world, particularly in, within certain cultures more than others, relishes this verse God is love. But there's a hiccup. When we read that, with sin's gravitational pull exerting its force back on ourselves, We assume God is love means God loves us most. God loves mankind most. But listen, if God loves mankind most, he's no longer holy. He's an idolater. He's broken the first commandment. He has, in other words, contradicted his own nature and essence. God is love is first and foremost a reference to the love shared among the three persons of the tripersonal God. John 17, we looked at it last time. This, And here's what's profound about this. A unipersonal God could not have loved before creating other beings. Therefore, it's not possible to say God is love of a unipersonal God. The only way it's possible to say the essence of God is love is if God is tripersonal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The first and greatest commandment in the words of Jesus is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the tripersonal God excels at living that out because it's part of his very essence and being. So, the origin of holiness is love for God and love for people. Now, let's read that back into the, some of the stories we looked at earlier Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias, Sapphira. If these stories feel foreign to us, and I would imagine that if, if you've never ever read them before, they probably feel foreign to you. They probably feel like they're from another world. It's probably an indicator of how foreign the holiness of God is to us, which also means it's an indicator of how foreign God's love is to us because the two are intertwined. You cannot pull them apart because each of these stories, Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias, Sapphira, they are, they are stories about God's love. The stories of Nadab, Abihu, and Ananias, fire are stories about God's love. Now that's enough to make your mind explode. I realize How is that possible? How is that possible? These are stories about God's love. You say love for whom exactly? Well, remember what Jesus himself said is the first and greatest command. Love for God. Love for God. Love for people. Love for God. Love for people. Expressions of holiness. But love for people ought never to compete for first prize with love for God. Jesus classified it. the first and greatest command. First and greatest command is love for God. If the two are ever pitted against one another in competition to see who comes out first, love for God must always win. Jesus himself hinted at this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying, you don't have the order right if that's the case. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. They don't have the, you don't have the order right. The first and greatest command is love for God. The stories of Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, and fire are stories about God's love. God's love for whom? God's love for God. See, God is not a shapeshifter. He's not Holy some of the time and loving at other times. He's not loving while his holiness lies dormant or holy while his love lies dormant. He's both simultaneously because holiness results when you love the right thing to the right degree. Love and holiness are intertwined and they cannot be pulled apart. And if it sounds strange to us that these stories demonstrate the love of God, that's an indicator of how much work we have to do to truly grasp the love of God. And that's why we've got next week. Now, we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but the fact of the matter is today we, we love with a sloppy love. We, we carry around sloppy notions of what love is. And texts like these are there to cause us to pause and to maybe take another look at it. God's love, on the other hand, is, is precise, it's meticulous, it's perfect because his love is always holy. He always loves the right thing to the right degree. Now, I understand that if if we feel at this juncture, a sizable gap, um, I understand if we feel overwhelmed and overpowered, but I want to leave you with one last thought on this. All this emphasis on the holiness of God is a good thing. It's a remarkable thing. The cross is the perfect, perfect expression of the intertwining of God's love and holiness. It's the perfect expression of love for God and love for people. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, we're given a window into how the cross serves as God's expression of love for himself. John chapter 17, Father, Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, the hour that Jesus is talking about is the hour of the cross. The cross is the moment of the Father making much of his son, and it's the moment of the Son making much of the Father. There is a valuing of the tripersonal God in the cross. There's love from Father to Son in the cross. Philippians 2, Paul talks about all that Jesus does in his life and his death and his resurrection and how God exalted Jesus so that every knee will bow. And all of this was done. Why? To the glory of God, to make much of God, to draw attention to the importance of God. The entire life of Christ is meant to exalt the greatness of God. So God's love for God is clearly evident in the cross of Christ, but God's love for people is also clearly seen in the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul put it very succinctly, Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what I want you to see is that God's love for himself makes his love for us even more remarkable. God's love for himself makes his love for us even more remarkable. Because if you think about the fact that the tri-personal God was already infinitely happy and doesn't need us, nor do we contribute anything to him, it is striking that the father, out of a yearning, pleading love for the world, would send his son, who would willingly die for us, To bring us into the very life of God and make us partakers of the divine nature. It is absolutely stunning. So the origin, the spring from which bubbles forth the holiness of God is love. God is love. His love for himself, his love for us. So what, you say? So what? Well, aren't you awed by it? Don't you find all of this not just interesting, but inspiring? We're getting to know the very internal being and nature of God. You're getting to know God as a person, not just a business partner or a force or a genie in the sky, a person. So I sincerely hope that you find the discovery of these perfections contained within the tri-personal God to be stunning. I hope you crave more discoveries of the very being and essence of God because we were made to relate to God on this level. I'll close with, uh, for instance, imagine you've got some family money. Someone comes along and says, I'd like to marry you. So you get married. Imagine after the wedding, at some point, your spouse comes to realize that he or she cannot get his or her hands on the family money and they leave you. How do you feel? Violated, used, just a means to an end, an object. You feel like you were not loved for who you were in and of yourself. Almost all of us relate to God like that. Unless, of course, you come to enjoy God, enjoy God, not for what he does for you, but who he is. You're relating to God on a completely different level when you find new discoveries about his glory and his holiness and other perfections to be riveting. When you find new discoveries of God's perfections to be awe-inspiring, you are relating to God personally, not contractually. And the more we relate to God personally, the more we're living within the intended purpose for which we were made. Let's pray. Holy God, I pray our thirst for you, the living God, would grow to insatiable levels. That we, along with the Apostle Paul, would say everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you. As we do, I pray we would see similar responses to the likes of Isaiah, who upon gazing at the superlativeness of you, the Holy God cries out, woe to me, I am undone. And Peter, who upon realizing the complete otherness of your son says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Renew our reverence for you, God, the consuming fire. And as you do that, allow us to bask more deeply in the enormity of your love that would reach out to save us. Pray these things to Christ our Lord. Amen.